That one's hit deep to left field. There it goes. See ya. A pinch hit. Two-run home run for Gary Sanchez. And the Yankees lead 3-2. to two. This is an Now, this is Steve Bennett. Welcome to season 11, episode 11 of the Sportscasters podcast. It's very great to have you with me here tonight on June 16th, uh, 2021, which is, of course, five years to the day after June 16th, 2016, which was the day that Paula uh, was welcomed into the world. So my Beautiful daughter is five years old, and for one last thing tonight, uh, I'll talk for a few minutes about five years of fatherhood and what it's meant to me and what Paula means to me, and that'll be at the end of the show, but first, we got some great stuff tonight, Uh, and the first interview of the show is something I'm very excited for you to hear. Uh, The guest is Jay Mariotti, and if that name rings a bell, if you know you know the name, You're going to know the voice. Who is Jay Mariotti again, in case you forgot for some reason? He was on Around the Horn almost every day for eight years. Him and Woody Page were the OGs of Around the Horn. And he would be on every day battling with Woody and Tim Kalashaw and whoever else was on the show the first eight years. And then something happened. Uh, Domestic dispute, some kind of legal issue. And... He, he says he wasn't canceled. He was sort of canceled in the sense of how we would think of it now. Um, he wasn't permanently canceled, but he did lose some jobs at the time. And then, you know, he came back and he's done various other jobs. And I had kind of forgot about him, to be honest. And I told him this and I started following this sports media web, website on Twitter that is running his current columns that he writes for his Substack. And I looked him up on Twitter and I was shocked that he only had like 8,000 followers on there. You know, because to me, someone who's been on ESPN for, you know, eight years doing around the horn, geez, should have 60, 70,000, maybe more. And I, I, I reached out and I, I set up the interview and he agreed to come on and I started doing research and I couldn't believe uh, what I was finding, the the links that were out there to articles about what a bad person he is and how miserable he is and how unlikable he was. And I couldn't, be- I couldn't believe it. And I started asking people, you know, what do you know about Jay Mariotti? You know, are you a fan of him? And people were saying like, oh, isn't he kind of grouchy? Or, oh, he's kind of, he doesn't really like sports much, right? Or, oh, didn't something happen to him? And it just made me really curious about his story. And we spent an hour talking about what happened, his side of the story. First, the first 20 minutes is really fun. Uh, We talk about, you know, him coming up, how he ended up on Around the Horn, the first few years of Around the Horn, working for Frank DeFord at the National, 
which was a really fun for me to uh, to, to do with them. I love talking about Frank DeFore. I love talking about the National. So we do this great one-hour interview with Jay Mariotti, which, you know, it's one hour, and I think I talk for two minutes of the hour. I just let him go. You know, I wanted to get in, and you guys can tell me on email or, or Twitter or whatever if I made the right call. Should I have jumped in more? But I, I, just something about the way he was talking, I wanted to let him talk. I, and he said he's told his side of the story. I couldn't find it. You know, he mentioned that he wrote a book about it, but he also mentioned that book's not for sale anymore. So I didn't read the book. I didn't know about it. I can't read it now. It's not out there anymore. And part of me just felt like he really was waiting for someone to ask him these questions and wanted to tell his side of the story. Now, he he, he wasn't feeling great. Uh, he had a little bit of a cough, and he he wanted me to edit out every cough, which, of course... You know, I would have had to sit down at the computer and listen to the hour interview and take every time he coughed out, which, you know, taking the coughs out isn't the problem. It's finding the coughs. And with Paula's birthday and Tammy's birthday, I didn't get to edit out as many of them as I would have liked to. So I hope Jay isn't upset with me there. Uh, but give him a break on those because um, the story is amazing. And he's amazing. He's, he's he, he was just man it was like Usain Bolt you know it was like ready set go and this guy ran the 100 meters in like eight seconds and uh man he was I can't wait for you to hear this so I'm gonna cut the interview a little bit or the intro a little bit short but so Jay Mariotti's the first interview. We'll update the book club. And then after that, we're going to have the author of one of the book club books of the month on. His name is Dave Jordan, and he wrote a book called Cobra with Dave Parker. And it's a little disappointing because it's Dave Parker's book. This is the guy who he wrote it with. I never got a sniff of thinking that Dave Parker might be on this show. Uh, Dave Jordan reached out to me. He never mentioned Dave Parker as a possibility. I never asked it would have been cool probably to hear it from him. But I also thought, you know, it might be interesting to see how did they collaborate, you know, what's going on there. So we do about 25 minutes with him. And then, like I said, we'll do one last thing at the end there on my five years of fatherhood. Lots of podcasts coming. So this one's going to be up Thursday morning for your drive in. And I've noticed there's a lot more driving in. I remember the very first time I went out to go to the doctor at the start of the pandemic, maybe mid, late March 2020. And it was a scene out of a zombie apocalypse movie or something. There was nobody anywhere. And uh, that luxury is over. <laughs> the traffic is back. People are on the roads again, I think. And uh, with that said, this will be up Thursday. And then I'm doing an interview tomorrow with Brett Martin who wrote a book called Difficult Men, which is one of my favorite all-time books in the history of the book club. And it's about Tony Soprano and uh, Walter White and the anti-heroes that dominated television during the television revolution of the 2000s. And uh, I can't wait to have him on. I sent him a bull or a, a bull, a bottle of Chevetta's chicken sauce. And he loved it, and I thought we'd be friends forever, and he's politely declined 
several, several appearances on the show, but he bit on the 10-year anniversary push. So he's going to be on the next show, as is John Wertheim. And everyone's looking forward to hearing John, uh, the author of the Sportscasters article on SI. Uh, But he'll be here to talk about glory days. And then next week also, we'll have a new 24-inch podcast as well. So a busy week of podcasting. Uh, But before we get to those ones, let's focus on this one because it's awesome. I can't wait for you to hear this Jay Mariotti interview. I can't wait to get the feedback on it. Again, I apologize to Jay that I didn't take as many throat clears out as he may have liked. Give him a break on that. Who cares about that? Let's hear. Just listen to the content. Uh, make your own opinion. Do do research on the guy. He's a brilliant writer. He's an absolutely brilliant sports writer, and his work is great. Um, great. He's great at writing. You know, I'm glad. I'm glad as someone who loves sports writing that we didn't totally lose him to TV. Um, you know, many writers who 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 ventured that way just stopped writing. Greats like Tony Kornheiser. You know, um, and Bill Simmons, really, I mean, not to TV, but to podcasting and everything else. But Jay Mariotti is a Hall of Fame sports writer. He is great at it. And I love reading his work. I'm glad I rediscovered it. And I hope he becomes a friend of the program because I have absolutely nothing against him. He's been super nice to me. Uh, I'm all about letting someone tell their side of the story. Um, And I hope you enjoy it. So let's take a break. We'll be right back. With Jay Mariotti. Our first guest tonight is making his sportscaster's debut. He spent eight years battling Woody Page and Tim Kalashaw on Around the Horn. And he's one of the greatest sports writers of all time. And I'm so excited for him to be on the show today. A warm, warm sportscaster's welcome to Jay Mariotti. Hey, Mr. Mariotti, how are you doing today? Thanks for doing this. Steve, it's a pleasure. I read the story about you by John Wertheim, and uh, I'm honored. What a, what a <laughs> guest list you have. I'm, I'm a Peter King. I went to college with Peter King once upon a time. So uh, you're doing well, and uh, thanks for having me. A bobcat, then. A bobcat on the line? Yeah, an OU bobcat. OU bobcat. And OU uh, actually reached the second round of the tournament this year. Yeah. I mean, they actually created a stir. Uh, I think it was, who did that? Was it Grant Hill did one of their games at Ohio U, the, the biggest story of the first week. I mean, wait a minute, Grant Hill was saying this about my school? but They went yeah, further than Ohio they, State uh, in the tournament. <laughs> uh, they did, <laughs> yeah. and... Uh, Good, good for. I mean, I'm glad every now and then OU makes makes a little run. My uh, one of my college professors has a son on the club hockey team, a goalie on the club hockey team. So we had a little group chat after that. Um, I'll tell you what, if the if the club hockey team is and any bit as rowdy as it was when I was there, it was just a beer fest. Yeah, I mean, oh, the, I'm sure the, it is. The scores yeah. would be six, 16 to 15, yeah. and everybody would be drunk in the stands. And then after the <laughs> game, every, if there wasn't a fight on the ice, then everybody would pull out the kegs on the ice. It was just riotous. Yeah, that sounds like club hockey. <laughs> that sounds like club yeah. hockey. Um, you know, way back, uh, way back a long time ago now, I first learned about your columns growing up in Buffalo in the National. Um which to me was the greatest thing ever because I got to read sports writers who weren't from my hometown and they treated wrestling like not a sideshow, right? Dave Meltzer had a column in there, which was the first time in my lifetime I ever seen wrestling um, 
in a like a mainstream publication like that. I guess they had the Hulk Hogan uh, article in Sports Illustrated, but I was like four then. Um, but I started reading you in <laughs> the National. <laughs> yeah, I started reading you in the National, which I think was ahead of its time. And uh, God bless and rest his soul, the great Frank DeFord, who was uh, on this program once, which was a huge honor. And we talked about the National. Let's just start there for a second. What do you remember about the National and your work there? And do you agree that maybe it was a little bit ahead of its time? It was. Unfortunately, they couldn't figure out uh, how to get the newspaper into boxes. And, and there was quite a bit of sabotage by established uh, big-time newspapers oh, because they would put the National would Yeah, they'd put these boxes in cities with these glittering yellow boxes and then, oh, I don't know, maybe in Chicago, the Tribune might, you know, plug it so that you couldn't buy it. There, there were legitimate concerns about uh, the national taking over sports writing. And, and what I guess I wish, looking back and then seeing the athletic now, is that if we had had yep. digital back then, there is no doubt in my mind that the national would have thrived. But the problem was the product was great. Everybody said, this is a great product, but how do I find it? It was impossible to find uh, the people with the money, ran out of money, or they didn't want to keep throwing money at it. And it, it died in about 18 months. So that's why in, in my media columns I write for uh, Barrett Sports Media, I'm, I'm pretty tough on the national. I'm sorry, the athletic, because I think they have an opportunity to succeed if they do it right. Because obviously in the digital age, bam, you post something immediately. Whereas back then, as I said, it was impossible to find the print edition. So that, I guess that's my thought. It's, it's a damn shame that we didn't have technological advances back then. Or maybe I'd still be working at the, the national. For sure. I remember in Buffalo that I would ask my mom when we would go grocery shopping if we could go to the Wegmans in the town over because it had a huge newsstand and they had it there. So I would say to my yeah, mom, can we go to that bigger Wegmans? Yeah, well, and I guess my point yeah, is the yeah, Wegmans was, in my town didn't have it, you know, because they had the, yeah, they had it, the it Buffalo News USA Today, it, that was it. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was scattershot. You had yeah. no idea where to find it. And that the only place for certain where you could find it would be a corner newsstand in New York City. That's where they were based. That's where all the publishing people and the big editors were. So they were going to make damn sure that that it was going to be front and center in New York. But I remember they assigned me initially to Detroit because I had started out of college at the Detroit News. They they hired me out of Denver. So I went to Detroit temporarily as a columnist there. And I remember being there the night of the launch, the night before, literally a guy named Bud Shaw, who went on to Cleveland to become a sports writer for a long time, was standing on a table with a broom trying to figure out how to fix the printing press. And I said, oh this is God. not going to work. <laughs> We're, it's, it's primitive. We're trying, but we cannot compete against the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune or the L.A. Times when we've got a sports writer trying with a broom trying to fix the printing press. So <laughs> it, it was a great idea in theory. They, it was like being named to an all-star team. It was oh, it's an incredible. honor to work with all of these yeah. people. They, they hired Scott Osler away and Mike Lupica away. And my, you know, the Ford wrote there and you name it, Dave Kindred, the biggest names in the business at the time were there. I was just thrilled to be on the team. And then the next thing, you know, uh, Frank, 
Mr. Ford is walking down the hallway in New York with glazed eyes. And, and I said, man, something's going on. I followed him into the newsroom and he said, uh, folks, this is the day we've all been dreading. And it died. And there was a lot of glee in the industry because, face it, it's a business with a lot of backstabbing and envy. And uh, I remember there were <clears throat> a lot of people jumping for joy that the, na- the National had died. Fortunately, just about everybody quickly got gigs. I ended up in Chicago. Sure. Uh, but, but you know what? This is my greatest fear, Steve, is that if the athletic does have to lay people off, there aren't any jobs now. Oh, I That's know. It's going to be harder. Back then, we, yeah, yeah much harder yeah. because the athletic hire, you know, they hire what, 400 sports writers? And those guys I left don't know good. what's going to happen to the athletic. Yeah. I'm A lot sorry, of those guys and girls left good jobs, too, you know? Betting on digital, left, leaving Sports Illustrated, leaving newspapers across the country. You know, in Buffalo, when the Buffalo Athletics started, the first few people they hired both left the Buffalo News to go. You know what I mean? Like, so. And yeah, I don't I, think I the Buffalo News guys. would hire two guys back. They wouldn't. You know what I mean? They don't. No, they wouldn't. No, that yeah. once you leave those places, it, they they kind of go bye bye because yep. you're going to gamble and leave us, which I think is kind of crap. You know, come on, just just if they're good to begin with, sure, don't hold a grudge. But yep. that's the business. Now it's probably ten times worse. Uh, there's a great baseball writer named where I live in L.A. Andy McCullough had a great gig at the L.A. Times, national baseball writer. He jumped to the athletic for more money because they had to pay him more. That's the only way he would have jumped. I'm worried about a guy like that because maybe he'd be one of the ones to keep. Maybe say they reduce the staff to 100 national writers. Yeah, I think he'd probably stick. But I'd be worried about guys in certain smaller markets who jumped and thought this was the all-star team. This will end up being the future of the business. I'm afraid they they overspent their wad. They yep. hired too many writers. They tried to conquer the world. And when you're after subscribers and we just go through a pandemic and some people simply don't care about sports as much as they once did, they have now stalled on their subscriptions. And if you're not showing growth at an operation like that, uh, you're going to have a hard time selling the place. I know Axios tried to buy it, didn't go through. There's been talk about the New York Times buying it. Yep. I don't think that'll happen. So I'm worried about the athletic. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up in the context of the national because that, that that was the that was the forerunner of what we're seeing today. But these guys are going to have to make a move eventually, either cut the staff or find somebody willing to take on this very uh, bloated operation. And I I still think they have to be much better at explaining to people what they get. You know, I think when like you know, let's say here. Uh, Tim Graham says, I'm leaving the Buffalo News and I'm going to cover Buffalo sports for the athletic and you can follow me and I got a promo code. It's $3.99 a month for a year, whatever. People just think they're getting the Buffalo stuff. They don't realize that you get all the all 400 writers. You know what I mean? I just don't think it's clear enough sometimes. Yeah, the the feed is a little odd sometimes. I, I mean, I have, you know, I worked in Chicago for 17 years, so I have tried to, all right, I'm going to push Cubs. Maybe I'll get their stories. They don't always come up. Yeah. I, I mean, it looks like, to me, a sophisticated interface. It looks like they've thrown a lot of money into it. But you're right. There's not enough understanding that everybody out there in digital media has to do a better job of educating people. You can't just assume everybody is a whippersnapper and knows how this works. Some people just want to read great sports writing, but maybe they're not with it 
technologically. Well, you're right. You make a great point. You you can read your Buffalo guys. You can read Ken Rosenthal. Just push push his name. Sure, Richard. You should Deitch. be able to get all yeah. of that. All the you're right, yeah. but it doesn't. But it doesn't pop up on my feed. And and who am I going to call? I once tried to. Call, I've tried to call them for a couple of things, and they're not. It's it's not like there's a voice on the other end. Yeah, so, you got a better chance getting the Ghostbusters on the phone than them. Yeah, <laughs> it, and I, you know, I, think, I met with these guys. I met with these guys back in San Francisco, and I worked there in 2016. They were just starting. <clears throat> they were uh, based in San Francisco, tech guys, yep. nice guys, but didn't know a lot about sports writing. And one guy's from Notre Dame, another guy from Philadelphia, and. Next thing you know, the guy from Philly, about a year in after he's just starting, says, we're going to conquer the world and we're going to bleed every newspaper for its talent and make them die, blah, blah, blah. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He's just don't say things like that. And uh, from what I can tell, while they have, I guess, about a million subscribers, that includes Europe, Canada, the U.S., that's not cutting it. You know, you're not, you know, I don't think the local newspapers, they know the athletic is there but I don't think they're frightened and thinking they're going to put us out of business. I think there's a niche there, but say in Chicago where both papers, as I wrote recently, the Tribune and the Sun-Times, they're dying, absolutely dying. And here's a market the Athletics should go walk right in and dominate. I don't, I don't think they have many subscribers there. So, and it's, it's such a dynamic sports town. So a lot of kinks here, they're about, what, five, six years in now. I would like yep, to think – uh, they can figure it out, but I, I, I think they're going to need a financial bailout or else you're going to be seeing a lot of writers on the street. Yeah, I hope not. Uh, so you were at the National. I read you there. I was, you know, always been a guy who loves sports writing, sports writers, sports media, just as much as sports. And then the next thing I knew, I'm seeing on ESPN. Um, did you do some sports reporters or was your first ESPN on Around the Horn? <clears throat> I think do you remember Jim Rome had a TV show. I think I did that a couple of talk times. Talk to on talk to that one. Yeah, when yeah. they have three sports writers and just yell. Sure. Yeah, that, that was Jim Rome. Everybody forgets about Jim Rome's show. He had a Rome Rome two whatever it was called. Talk he to, had I think shows called, on there yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before he jumped somewhere else. Uh, my my I, let's see. I started in Chicago in ninety one. I was thirty years old. Uh, that was pretty daunting in itself to walk into a market like that. Sure. I'd never lived there, but they hired me after the national. And, uh, about a, 10 years later is when my ESPN <clears throat> association began. And, uh, it started on the radio, believe it or not, Max Kellerman and I had a show together where I couldn't get a word in edgewise. <laughs> shocking. But I, I mean, yeah. Max just dominated and that was about the time when, when PTI was starting to thrive. Let's start a sequel. Let's call it Around the Horn. Yeah. And I get a call one day from Jim Cohen, who worked for Mark Shapiro, who was running ESPN at the time. Now he runs Endeavor out here in the Hollywood, big mogul out here. And uh, they said, we're going to start another show. And I said, boy, this is like Melrose Place in 90210. If you were good, you're probably too young for this, but no, you I never want to be the yep. second one in the door. You know, right. they're always going to, they're going to nail you. They're going to be scrutinizing you. I said, what the hell? Well, what are we going to do? Yeah, we're going to, we're going to get you guys together in New York. Uh, and we're going to go, I'll go out to a deli and we're going to figure it all out. So Bob Ryan, Tim Kalashaw, Max, uh, Woody, uh, you name it, 
we're all there and the place catches on fire, the oh Carnegie Deli. And, and oh they can, you know, the, the roof. And we, I mean, everybody got out. There was no problem. But point being, okay, this Maybe is going to be omen. daunting. Yeah, bad omen. Yeah. yeah. And finally, we get the thing started, and it was choppy at the start. Because face it, unlike Wilbon and Kornheiser, who had been yelling at each other in the Washington years, Post yeah. newsroom forever, we, you know, other than Woody, we had a big, you know, uh, what would I call it, a feud or something, endeavor, rivalry, I don't know. Woody and I go way back in our uh, poking fun at each other and so on. But uh, other than Woody and I, there wasn't a lot of chemistry. And it because we had never really conversed with each other in that kind of a, a platform. So it struggled at the start. We're getting killed. Spell, fellow sports writers are killing us. Wasn't any fun. There were rumors it was going to die quickly. And finally, Shapiro decides, you know, we got to spit this thing up. Let's do a survivor style. We're going to do a mute button and we're going to eliminate somebody. Whoa. And we thought that was silliness. I thought, okay, we're pulling out bells and whistles. Now we're not journalists anymore. We're now a clown show. Well, that clown show that consistently had me and Woody and then a cast of other, a few others, not many. Kalashaw was on a lot. And thrived. And Kalashaw was on a lot. And eventually it was a Don Day Plaschke at first, T.J. Simers. and, And once we had a steady rotation going, uh, every quarter the ratings went up to the point where we just about got to uh, PTI. I mean, a million a day. It boomed. Yeah. And I wasn't prepared for any of that. You, suddenly you're becoming a target on websites, people lying about you, all kinds of nonsense. I was not prepared for any of that. It, we basically became a huge American afternoon TV show. I mean, we're competing against Oprah, Wendy Williams, all these shows yeah. on Suddenly at five o'clock in the afternoon on the East Coast, I had no idea. And about four or five years in, it it started to become something that, that swallowed you whole. It became bigger than uh, the column I was writing in Chicago. It became bigger than covering media events, national, international. The whole thing swallowed your persona because all these people are watching every day. And you go through an airport and it's... Uh, do you really hate Woody? I said, yeah, that half hour, I hate Woody. <laughs> and uh, and it, it became a huge show. So that you asked me about ESPN. Yeah. It started with radio, moved on eight years around the horn, and those were the prime years of around the horn. The ratings have slipped dramatically. Um, I'm proud to say that we uh, survived those early challenges and turned that into a, peop- a show that people seem to enjoy. I can't explain why. But they seem to enjoy it I think very much. Every year of college, I watched Around the Horn PTI from five to six, like every single day. You know what I mean? Like me and my roommates, we'd be sitting on the couch that we had garbage picked earlier that summer, and you know, in our crappy apartment, and we would watch and eat our dinner and every day. But there was this website at the time called SportsPages.com, and what it was is they would put links of articles from sports writers around the country on there. And I just knew the names of people from either sports reporters or from around the horn, different shows, uh, guys who would come on Mike and the Mad Dog, which by this time was on. Uh, yes. So I would watch Mike and the Mad Dog every day and they'd have different writers on that I'd learn. And I would just read the columns of the guys I knew, the names I knew, guys and gals that I knew. And I would read your column all the time. You know, I'd read whenever... Uh, while Kornheiser and, and Wilbon were still writing, I'd read theirs, Woody's, whoever. 
And it was a great site. It was a great way for me to learn about sports writers and, um, and, and get to read the different newspapers. And then, you know, paywalls started popping up. Uh, you know, it's harder to read columns. It, it changed a little bit. But I really enjoyed that time, like that period for me. I really loved. I loved reading your columns and um, I really enjoyed that. Sportspages.com. It went by the way of the dodo bird, but I enjoyed no, it. No, I, I remember that. And, and that was the heyday of sports writing. Yep. And there will be people who tell you that these very TV shows we did killed sports writing. No way. I'm not so sure it killed it, but it, I think it changed the goals of many young people. Whereas once upon a time they wanted to write sports, suddenly it became, oh, I want to do that TV show sure. and debate people. Well, before you do that, you have to you know, establish credibility as a columnist. And, and you know, and that, that takes years. You can't just show up on a show and start yapping about sports. Well, unfortunately, what the Internet has done and podcasting has done and all these various blogs and so on, it's given everybody a forum. And the good thing about that is when you're very young, you can experiment and, and build a platform, and, and, and that will make you grow. I didn't have any of that. I just had, I was relying on a newspaper when I was 21. So in that sense, digital has been great for people. On the other hand, it's stretched out the business like an old T-shirt. Uh, it's just not as rigid as it used to be. The business, uh, I, I would tell you maybe, Steve, that there were 150 great jobs 20 years ago. <laughs> I don't know how many great jobs there are now because it's all diluted. Right. There, a lot of people have jobs, but are they great jobs? You're not being read by nearly the number of people who read us back in the day. And I'm not one of these guys who lives in the past. I'm living squarely in now. I just don't know where this business is headed. I know I was in it when I think it was at its best and had its priorities straight. See, now I see, you know, Barstool Sports and, and this guy who doesn't have a, you know, an ounce of journalism in his blood, Portnoy, becoming this outrageous Internet character. And I guess that's sports media today. Well, I, I don't think that's sports media but try telling his couple million whoever you sure. know yeah young my younger cousins young and stuff people. they love it they just love barstool you know what i mean like, exactly yeah. so so times change we all evolve i i think the business is devolving not evolving but that's just me uh, sure. i would like to see those kind of sites grow up a little and by that i mean you know feature some great sports writing i mean lebron james just got knocked out of the playoffs on his ass last night. He's Lagon. And LeBron walked off the court. And, and he's done, and he will never win another championship. That's the story here. I, if I ever turned on, on Barstool, and I did it today, I'm going to guess we're not necessarily going down that path when I still think the majority of people out there, all demographics that follow sports, still want that LeBron topic today. Now, PTI will do it, Around the Horn will do it, ESPN established will do it. But sites such as Barstool and younger sites, I think they've turned it into pure entertainment and good for their followers, good for Barstool. But I'm, the young people I talk to today still love sports and want to get at the bottom of why Anthony Davis can't stay healthy and is, is LeBron too old. And why, why can't he shake hands? Why can't he win like a man? I don't know. Lose like a man, I mean, it bothers me a little bit. As a hockey guy, I'm a you. hockey guy. You know, I, 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 I watched, you know, yeah, Mike, Mark Scheifele might have taken the guy's head off, but 
but they're going to shake hands at the end of that series. You know what I mean? Out of respect for the game and, and all that. And LeBron, you know, he... Yeah, I mean, he did sign the... He signed the Devin Booker, did the exchange, but I think that was in the back hallway. Yeah, that was well LeBron, after. He's always, yep. he's always a baby. I mean, remember, when, when the last time... Okay, let's see. Let me think back. This was 2009. I was there. Remember the game, the Celtics series. You might be too young, but he, he, he kind of fades in the series. He almost quit. Then afterward, he rips off that jersey. This would have been no, 2010. I remember. Yep, I remember. And the next thing you know, he's going to Miami. Yep. So LeBron, is. I thought last year he grew up. I thought, all right, finally in the bubble. Uh, it's very difficult challenge in his life. He hunkers down for 90-something days, wins a championship, made, makes great statements for social injustice, uh, helps rub Donald Trump out of office with his voting initiative. I thought he did a wonderful uh, job in the year 2020. Once we flip to 2021, he's back to the whiny LeBron. He, he's back to the mysterious LeBron who won't tell the world whether he's vaccinated or not, which is really important to the NBA try to get more people vaccinated also in the african-american community sure. we're trying to achieve herd immunity in this country yep. and lebron james mr social justice mr activist won't even tell us if he's vaccinated or not see he he lost me this year then he goes to a tequila event and the nba should have suspended him they find they didn't even find him and now he doesn't shake hands last night and he looks like a baby and he's yelling at the sun that it just was a bad look and all this nonsense about Michael Jordan. Can we put an end to the LeBron versus Jordan he's argument? Not, he's not once Jordan. And for freaking all, not even close. Yeah. Great player, but he's not Jordan. Uh, let's get back to you for a second. When it ended at ESPN, we almost a little bit relieved to back out of the spotlight a little bit. Cause I was just listening to you talk about how you weren't really prepared for, Maybe the celebrity aspect of it, maybe the bright lights of it. Because I think after that, didn't, is that when you were in San Francisco and kind of working on editing the sports page, things like that? Like, did it feel good to back off of it? Was it not something you wanted well, to do? Let, or? Let, let me let me give you the the full version. Sure. Right. So okay. So so around the horns flying high. Independent of that, I'm working for a newspaper in Chicago. The Sun Times, which once was very lively and dogged and and a very proud gritty tabloid was starting to lose its way that my editors are jumping into bed with people i'm covering like jerry reinsdorf and it just became this this hideous operation where they're hanging on uh the owners at the top are skimming money one of them went to prison it became an ugly place to work and you know they valued me they kept giving me three-year deals and they were lucrative but Finally, I realized our website just absolutely sucked and it wasn't making any impact. And I was tired of it because you started to see the real serious operations around the country develop uh, serious websites. We were not. Ours was a joke. Things weren't being posted on time uh, in a timely manner. So I told them, guys, if we're going to go to Beijing for the Olympics. We're going to go R2 against the Tribune's 10 or 12 or whatever. And if we do a good job there, I'll, I'll be proud and I'll stick around. But I'm, I'm going to opt out of this deal quickly if we don't get our website together. Well, sure enough, Michael Phelps is breaking records and this stuff is not being posted timely. We're, we're, at, we're a half-assed digital operation. So after, after the Olympics, I go back. I politely 
resign, all hell breaks loose, the paper is pissed at me, the Tribune breaks the story, you don't ever let the other paper break the story about one of your own people leaving, Roger Ebert called me a rat, Oh no! Uh, it got insane, absolutely disproportionate to reality, insane what was going on there, and I think... It all kind of stemmed from being an everyday guy, and I was on every day for eight, pretty much eight years yep. on Around the Horn. And there was so much emotion, whether it's you know, jealousy or people being happy for me, whatever. I was shocked that our newsroom was as split as it was over this TV show that had the logo of the paper behind it that a million people a day were seeing free advertising. Guys, yet. There were disgruntled people there. Why am I not doing that show? I, you know, enough. Grow up. Well, you know, I finally resigned, and, and you know, and that happened, and then very quickly cut a deal. I went digital to something called AOL Fan House, which had Okay, great, I remember that. Yep. They had great they were throwing money everywhere. It was like a, a new version of the, of the National. Next thing you know, they've got 80, 90 sports writers there, and I'm at the NBA Finals with six other colleagues and thinking, my God, this is it. This is it. <laughs> Yahoo sports was <clears throat> becoming big at the time with the early years of, uh, Woj, Adrian Woj, Norowski, sure, Dave yeah. Morgan ran it. Uh, I, you know, Tim Brown was a base partner. Dan Wetzel was their columnist. I mean, they, they got names that became very, very big in the coming years. So we had kind of nailed it there. We've got this, we've got that. And, Suddenly, I have a legal case that very quickly was expunged, and we ended up winning the the uh, prevailing in the civil case shortly after. But once this case hit, it was uh, Jay is guilty. That's it. He's out of the business. That's it. He's done. That's it. And nobody in the media was fair. I mean, this early this was an absolute avalanche, right. and it was led by Deadspin because they knew they were going to get tons of traffic because of, of it. Yep. Nobody ever gave me a chance to tell the side of the story, and nobody completed the story. Was that it Delirio was, or well, he plea bargained. Yeah, he plea bargained for a low-level misdemeanor. He should be shot and killed. Uh, nobody ever understood why I did what I did. I subsequently wrote a book about it. I, I've done various interviews through the years. I've written magazine pieces. I've, anybody who reads that gets it. But at the time, nobody cared to get it. All they were interested in at that point was let's let's rub this guy out. And it was, my God, you talk about a shock to the system. And again, <clears throat> not to you know turn around the horn into this evil creature, but I believe that it turned me into a celebrity. That's right. what I was prepared. The celebrity for, of it to the yeah. point where I was being covered. <clears throat> excuse me, like a celebrity. Next thing you know, I'm, walk I'm living in L.A., walking down the street. TMZ is following me down the street. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, I'm not Robert Downey Jr. I'm this guy, the sports writer. And I was, I was disgusted with this industry because I started to think, wow, they're going to just selectively pick out who they're going to try to rub out, and they're not going to try to fairly cover this thing. They're just going to, here's our shot to get the guy. Of course, ESPN shows no spine at the time because, as John Skipper, who would have his own issues with cocaine later at a bust, would tell me eventually, Jay, we needed 
uh, some diversity on around the horn. And when he told me that one night, I, I my jaw hit the table because now I'm starting to understand why they very quickly ran me off the show before there was any resolution on the case. They wanted, they saw, and I, I caught onto it early, too many white male faces. In fact, I <clears throat> often told the producers up, you know, you've got Plasky, Kalashaw, Woody, and me on today. This doesn't look right, guys. I and and it's wrong. And what was? And I think everybody in Bristol knew it. But Skipper, who champions diversity, I champion diversity, saw an opportunity to you know get this guy off the show, who uh, had been doing it every day pretty much for eight years, and that opened up a variety of different uh, panelists. And to this day now, you don't have anybody doing the show every day. You've got a potpourri of 15, 20, 25 people, and I think the show has lost its continuity, <clears throat> to be honest with you. But uh, getting back to my situation, so AOL, which had told me uh, your column will resume on Monday, uh, oddly flips on me. The very day ESPN calls and says you're out of a job after a plea bargain, no contest to a low-level misdemeanor in a case that was a bunch of lies, uh, ESPN said, no. We're going to get rid of you. And then AOL, because I'm not going to be on Around the Horn anymore, ah, we're getting rid of you, too, and we're going to save uh, $300,000, Sure. And uh, I was shocked how this whole thing went down. And to answer your question, why did I back off? Well, when you're going at it hard from the time you're a college intern at 19 until you're 50 years old, and I don't know if anybody wrote more pieces than I did in that period of time. I was a columnist at 25, uh, wrote columns for 25 years. I saw the world. I covered everything imaginable. I was exhausted. And then I was disgusted with the industry because nobody <clears throat> ever called. Nobody ever said, what's your side of the story, Jeff? I, I thought this was supposed to be a two-way street. You don't want the other side of the story? Apparently not. Let me ask you so a couple of follow-ups. there was a lot of that. Let me ask you a couple of follow-ups. I'm sorry? Let me ask you a couple of follow-ups on this. Was uh, just yeah, yeah. out of curiosity, was it Delirio or Leach at that spin at the time? Do you do you remember who was running the site at the time? I I, I remember the name Delirio because okay. he, he was a heroin addict, and then he, he was the he one who ended up going into with, heroin rehab. I'm and, dealing with a guy who's a drug addict. Yeah, yeah and Hulk Hogan was it Gawker? He was in, <laughs> oh, in the center of that. Oh well, I, I think that guy. You know, he, you know, I was down low on his list of targets, Delario. I mean, I, I was you know target number 103. Yeah, you know, he's he's telling people at a Hulk Hogan uh, trial, oh, yeah, I, you know, if I, we'll run a picture of a, you know, of a, you know, we don't get, somebody could be five years old and we don't, we don't care. They can, they can look at it and make a picture. I mean, this right. guy was a sick, sick human being. Changed, just a sicko. He's changed his life around. He has. Um, well, good for him. Yeah. Why, do you know the guy? No, just for me. Well, I'm reading. Him, just tell reading. me to get his shit together and maybe offer me an apology or two. Because he I, I never think... got the story right. He never finished the story. And then he goes off and, and cleans up. Well, good yeah. for you, dude. Well, you, you've, you know, you've wrecked a lot of people in the process. Do you feel good about that? Sure. It's not journalism. That's people trying, oh, I don't know, it's a power trip. But tell me this. Maybe you know. Of all those people who worked for that site back then, anybody make it big? Will Leach. Anybody? Yeah, Will Leach. Well, Will Leach writes, writes what? The occasional pieces for various freelance publications? Didn't his website go down the drain once? I mean, oh, I, I don't think any of those people remotely came close to the <clears throat> careers of the people they were ripping. You know, they were always over Stephen A. Look at Stephen A. now. They, 
They were all over everybody imaginable. It wasn't sure. just me. That's it was fair. anybody they could go out and get some traffic from. No, you're and right. So, but I would, what I would say is, where are they? Maybe a couple of people at the New York Times, but I'm going to guess they were a little more journalistic than these idiots. Right. So, no, I just, I mean, my God, I went to journalism school and we have certain standards. And certainly I was a guy who, <laughs> I towed the line. Sometimes I went over the line because I thought it was very important to hold sports owners accountable in, in what is a multi-billion dollar business, soon to be a multi-trillion dollar business. And I thought it was important to do that. And I still believe that's important. So really, in a lot of ways, I was big on fierce independence, just as those sites were big on fierce independence. The difference was I had certain ethical standards. They had none. They would just lie about people. It feels like listening to you and listening to your story that you were kind of an early victim of cancel culture in a way. When you see things like this happen now, do you relate to people? Do you see things happening, people who do get caught up in cancel culture? Do you look at it and say, oh, you know what? I can relate to that. Why are we, why are we doing this? Why are we treating people like this? Well, I, I don't know if I'm cancel culture because I went on to have you know, two six-figure jobs after that. And I don't, I don't know if I was, quote, unquote, canceled. And I wouldn't consider those people you know, big enough to be doing any canceling. And I'm still writing and I'm still seeing. And, and nah, I don't. I, I would tell you that, that in regard to ESPN, I, I don't know if they canceled me. I guess you could say that. I, I would say more it was along the lines of here's a chance to um, Shed some uh, offer some diversity. Yeah. Different, you know, Michael Smith, Jamel Hill, uh, later Pablo Torre, and they're all good. I, I have no problem with that. That's great. It's just that don't don't use my situation as justification to rub me out and get rid of me and trying to ruin my career. And that's what I think Skipper tried to do. And he pretty much kind of told me that one night years later, Jay, we, we had to do this. We mean had to do it. <clears throat> and you know, he had made me some promises about trying to come back, but I don't want to work it, but he's gone. He got caught up in a cocaine scandal in the current ESPN today. Uh, I, I could never, ever, you know, go down the paths I do in my columns. I mean, I'm writing about gambling and why it's 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 evil right now. It could ruin sports media, and then ESPN's not going to run any of that because they're in the middle of it themselves. So right. it's best I left there at the time. I don't have any hard feelings. What I what I regret is that these <clears throat> sites, so-called sites, which ended up disappearing and going down the drain. Uh, you know, they they they. And it's not just me. They, they really went after people without without knowing how to go about it. I've had lawyers wanting to sue them, and I've said I'd probably win or get a settlement, or maybe they don't have any money. I don't know. But why would I ever waste my time on suing what, what I'm viewing is sort of a crap site? If I'm going to sue somebody, it's going to be a major operation. But, you know, I'd also have people tell me, lawyers, you're a public figure. Uh, they can pretty much say anything they want about you, lie or not. You're going to have to prove that uh, they intended to uh, lie. They were malicious yeah. about it, malicious intent, and and that's going to be hard for you to prove because you're a public figure. So there you go. Your original thesis here was how did your life change doing a major television show? There it it is. turned me into yeah. a Hollywood celebrity, and it, it never should have. Well, and ESPN did not ever ever 
care about call us all in and say, hey, guys, you're getting pretty big. You're all over these sites. Let's give you some tips. We love all of you. Never treated us like pieces of shit. We're just we're people. Yeah, we'll rub, we'll run you out one day and we'll rub you back and you're gone, you're in and you're out. It's uh, it's just, and you're seeing some people now like Levitard, so on leave there. And I wish he would have stayed there and just kept taking their money and doing whatever he could do because this is not going to work out what he's doing now, Also, even though they got their money from DraftKings. He's never going to have the profile he had back then. Sure. But in my case, it wasn't my choice, Steve. They They wanted... This is a good time to get him off of here because we're going to bring in a bunch of new people. Okay, fine. Well, well, you know, thanks for those eight years, guys. You didn't want to hear my story. Do you want to talk to my lawyer? And so I don't have any respect for these people. So if you ever read my pieces in uh, on Barrett's site, I do. You'll see yeah, that, I do. That, that that you know I'm giving you the down and dirty about sports media that nobody else has the balls to do today because well, they're, they're afraid to piss off anybody or else those people will never hire them or they might blackball you. Let me, let me, let me get one in here. So I'm letting you go. I've backed off. I'm letting you go. I, I brought you on here because I wanted to hear your story. But I want to tell you this. Like, when I think of Jay Mariotti, I'm a sports writer guy. You know what I mean? And I, I think you're one of the best of all time, honestly. And I'm not saying that because you're on the show. And I love reading your writing. And I've been asking people the last couple of days, uh, you know, when I just talk to like my brothers, my friends, you know, who you having on, I mentioned you I'm like, oh, I remember him from ESPN. Where's he been? Or like, did, was he like kind of an angry guy or what happened? Wasn't there a thing like and when I Google you, I, I just see these these articles like these salacious headlines like the Jay Mariotti writes the most perfectly terrible sports column in history and everyone's making fun of Jay Mariotti and terrible human being Jay Mariotti. Why? Why? Why is this the perception of you? Because and, and because and I'm being honest. I, I, I'm being honest here. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let me finish. Let me get I've it out. Read some, I've, right, read some, I've read some stories. Okay. I'm sorry. I've read some stories about these sites such as Deadspin and I think they're capable of anything, including taking money from people. I think they're capable of anything the way they were at the time. I, man, I've made some enemies in this business. It's, it's not hard to figure out who they are because if you're, you're in a city like Chicago and you go after the money people uh, who, who own these sports teams, uh, <laughs> connect the dots. I'm not saying that so-and-so paid so-and-so this amount of money to create all these salacious headlines. What I'm saying is you can blackball somebody very easily in this industry. And uh, as I told you 20 minutes ago, nobody has ever completed this story. How the civil case went favorably for us. How the whole thing was expunged quickly. How it was off my record quickly. That was our plea bargain deal. If we had gone to a trial, although you never want to leave it in those hands so the jury, of a jury, I'm a yep. Chicago guy new to L.A., I don't know what the L.A. jury composition would have been. I don't think that would have been pleasant. I had two lawyers tell me, you will win if you want to go to trial. I said, nope, I've got two daughters at Syracuse. This is, uh, what, this is horrible for them to have to read this. Uh, their peer you want it over. You just want to get it over writers. Yeah. I wanted out. I did, bam. Get, let's just, that's it. And you know what? A lot of people do that because you, 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 you do this. You, maybe somebody would tell you, why don't you pay off somebody? I don't pay off people. I don't do that. I chose this low-level misdemeanor. I had no idea it was, 
that it wasn't over. It was far from over. Once you do that, now they want to sink your teeth. Uh, they're sink, t- sink their teeth into you in regard to a civil suit. Well, here's what and I want to ask. And then the you. stories kept going. This yeah. is what I want to ask you is because I'm a benefit of the doubt guy. I give everyone the benefit of the doubt, and I came at you straight just as I just want to talk to this guy because I love his sports writing, and I wonder because we talked about the athletic not getting their message out. Do you think you haven't done a good a job, good enough job getting? your message out in terms of your side of the story. Has it just been that all these connect the dots type people, they got their word on who Jay Mariotti is and what he is. And that's the perception that's laying out there. Like maybe you haven't done a good enough job getting your side of it. Maybe, out I, there. maybe I don't care about, maybe I don't care about Google. I, I mean, okay, I, that's fair. I can't I, care about Google. I, I, I don't look at it. I, it's not real. It's not a real representation I don't know. At the time, I went on with uh, Whitlock, two different podcasts. It was those were pretty big podcasts. Uh, I think there was just sort of this this uh, virus that went through the industry. Uh, don't ever tell this guy's side of the story. I was certainly telling it enough. Okay, they don't want to pick it. If the sites that are ripping the hell out of me don't want to run my side of the story, that's not journalism. That's that's heavy-handed rubbing outism. And so I, nobody can take those sites seriously. And I guess what I would tell you is if you're an intelligent guy, and I think you are just in talking to you here, I, I think you're going to realize a lot of that stuff is trash. I mean, I don't know. I remember Peyton Manning talking about, you know, I Googled myself once and I couldn't believe all this crap on there about me. Well, you know, that's what I'm talking about, Steve. I went from being a sports columnist in Chicago to this guy that TMZ is following around. How in the hell did that happen? And I'm going to go back to the exposure every day on TV because suddenly you're 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 not that sports writer anymore. And and the perception is you're arguing on TV every day too, right? Because the nature of the show is yeah, you're in you're an also, argument. So you're also boy, there's that there's that jerk again. Well, yeah. I mean, who else got that treatment? Stephen A. Yeah. Who else got that treatment? <clears throat> Skip Bayless. Well, okay, you know, and they had to deal with it too. Those poor, but. You know what? I think those two guys were, were maybe smarter. I think Stephen A. would would never ever go out in public. I think. I think Stephen A. hangs out in his house. I know Bayless does that. They don't go out. See, I kept living my life. If I want to go out in Chicago to my Irish bar after a game, I'm going to go. Oops! Somebody took a picture of me with a beer in my hand. Oh, what? So I'm working for ESPN. Suddenly, become a prisoner, and I can't go have a beer at a bar. That's what it was becoming. The, the killer was one day, I get, I'm ready to go around the horn, uh, ride home, calls me, the guy runs a show, and he says, uh, I, I don't know if we can have you on today because there's a story that you got into a brawl at a bar last night. I said, I wasn't at a bar last night. And, and, and sure enough, they had to check into it. And the bar said, not only <clears throat> do we not, we don't, did this not happen, we don't even know who this guy is. There was a story was completely made up and they thank you. Let me go on the show that day. That's what I'm talking about. They were on somebody at those sites was it was getting to the point where need more Mariotti today because we got two million hits. We need more Mariotti, make something up. And they did. And ESPN it took it it was slow for them to catch on. They thought I was in a brawl at a bar. So man, it's it's Look, if I were looking at me, 
I would say this is one of the all-time stories in sports writing. What, how this guy went on a TV show kind of naively thinking, okay, this would be fun. And it turned into this mushroomed into this monster that I could not control. And the people would absolutely lie and rub you into the mud for traffic. And and then TMZ become, I, I mean, I had a lawyer who literally had to call Harvey Levin. She knew Harvey Levin and say, Harvey, why don't you lay off this guy? He hasn't written sports in two years. Finally, those guys stopped following me around. It's it, it's confounding. It's disproportionate. It's bizarre. It's chilling. It's wacko. And yes, I was very happy to get away, as you said, for a few years. <laughs> I don't blame you. And went to San Francisco. And next thing you know, <clears throat> this Delario character is sending notes to the staff. I had not met anybody. If you got any dirt on this guy, we pay. And the publisher had to have a, a staff meeting and say, anybody who deals with this Delario guy is fired on the spot. So five years later, this knucklehead continues to follow me around. This is a frightening fellow. He should have been in prison. That, if, he, if he terrorizes people like that, I'm a journalist. I've got to be tough. I've got to roll my eyes. I carried on, got to know people at the, at the paper. Everything went fine until they ran out of money. But this is what I mean. You're targeting somebody for what reason? Because you're a junkie and you need money? Is that what it is? So I hope however many people listen to your podcast, I know you've got a wide range of subjects. I hope people hear this. But Steve, I, this is not the first time I've said this. It's about the hundredth time I've said this. You think maybe I haven't done a good enough job in getting the message out. I think I've gotten it out everywhere. The problem is Google, it doesn't rise to the top of the rankings. Sure. So what? I don't care. I'm getting the story out. I wrote a book. If anybody cares enough, fine. Steve, we're, you we're name coming the book? out of a pandemic. Give the, give the book we're a coming, plug. Well, no. I, I took it. It was 2010 I wrote it. Okay. It was done for a reason at the time. Here's what happened, folks, for all you people who don't know. And then I took it off Amazon. Oh, all right. And honestly, I don't want to put it back on. But that's 11 years ago. People should have. We had, you know, we had people buy it, a few thousand people. The people that mattered bought it. But, Steve, it goes deeper than that. It's one of those, I think a guy like Norby Williamson in Bristol says, you know, yeah, Mariotti's a good uh, writer, and he got us out of ratings, but damn, look at his Google page. Well, Norby, be smarter than that. All your guys go through this. I don't want to work for Norby. I don't want to work for these people. What I love to do is what I do now. I write on Substack. It's pure. The headlines are great because I write them. <laughs> Nobody's getting in the way. No copy editors ruining it. You don't have a bad deadline. You have some some colleague wants to fight in the in the parking lot. You don't have all this crap. It's gone. Pure writing. Love to write. Hope it's shining through. I think it is. Jason Barrett is uh, running my columns as well. That's fine for me. Yeah. I don't need that eight years of chaos again. Don't need it. Five who get it, five who don't is my favorite read of the week every week. Listen, uh, Jay Mariotti, it's, I'm really honestly honored to have you on because to me, you're just one of the best sports writers in history, and that's all that matters to me. It's at Mariotti Sports on Twitter if you want to follow him there, jmariotti.com. Uh, you were doing a podcast for a little bit, Unlimited, at, or Unmuted, I'm sorry. Is that you going to pick that back up, or are you kind of backing I off think it? So. Or, we're, talking to some, yeah. we're talking to people about some things, but I, I need, as you and I were talking off the air, you need to figure out what the best podcast is. I think you've got the right formula, just interview people, ask good questions. You've asked, of all the journalists 
who've talked to me about this through the years, and there haven't been many, you have asked the best questions. I appreciate what, that. Why? What, where is everybody? I mean, you don't, it's just strange. It feels like a conspiracy almost. And I, I don't want to be conspiratorial. And I have a great life. No, everybody might assume, oh boy, I got fell off that. No, I have a better life now than I ever had when I was, you know, making, you know, seven, eight hundred grand a year. A much better life because I don't have this madness in my life and I can enjoy the craft of writing like never before. So what kind of podcast makes sense? I don't know. I still think we have to address independently the big stories in sports and keep being that independent voice. You might think Stephen A. and Bayless are independent. No, they're independent about Dak Prescott and whether the Knicks need to add. An, uh, they're not independent about going after Jerry Jones or Jerry Reinsdorf or Roger Goodell or what the hell's wrong with Rod Manfred or why <laughs> in the hell are we having an Olympics. Nobody's doing that because they're scared to death to do it. Or, as I wrote the other day, I'm not buying this Naomi Osaka, Osaka thing because I happen to believe that there are other motives here and that it's not just all about not wanting to do press conferences. Well, you run the risk of being what called a caveman, insensitive, maybe anti-Asian. Well, I wrote it anyway because I don't care. It's me. So and that's why, Steve, nobody at any of these networks that ever hire me, they're scared to frickin' death of me. But when I was growing up, that's what you were supposed to be. Challenge authority. Hold them accountable. When ESPN and Fox are part of what you're holding accountable, professional sports in America, there's no way I could work for them. That's why I'm rooting for the athletic to stay as independent as possible and try to cut through all of this and write those tough columns. They don't really have any columnists. They have Ken Rosenthal covering baseball, but they don't have traditional columnists. It's kind of a dying art right now. So anyway, thank you for letting me yeah. ramble. No, I, and, I, uh, anytime I, you want to do this again, we can. I appreciate it. I, I really enjoyed it. Again, I, I just want to get it out there. It's jmariotti.com. You can find him on Substack, jmariotti.substack.com. And J, uh, Barrett Sports also runs the comms. That's where I caught back up with you. Uh, Sports Media, Five Who Get It, Five Who Don't. It's one of my favorite columns every week now that I've been reading it. Love checking that out. I really appreciate this. And um, I kind of just let you go. You know what I mean? I just wanted to let you tell your story and, and hear your side. Because when I was re researching for this, I really did feel like I was only getting one side. Um, so I appreciate everything. It's the only side, it's the only <clears throat> side that's been told in a big picture way. I, I've told it, but nobody wants to hear it. I mean, call me, folks. Uh, let me say it right here. Anybody out there who remembers that I was a sports writer of prominence who did an eight-year show on ESPN and is kind of interested in what happens after that, it's a hell of a story. And for some reason, nobody wants to write it, which smacks, I don't know. Well, I, I, I appreciate Fine. you telling it here. I really... Uh... And we got to do it again because we got to. I want to. I think there's more layers to peel off here. And I'm going to ask a little. Yeah, there, there is. I'm going to ask some more, more questions about, next time. I kind of yeah, let well, you go this time, next, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I'll let you go here. But next time, I think Chicago is what we have to talk about because that got corrupt. Sure. In a hurry when it was. I got to find out more about Ebert calling you a rat. Yeah. Now, now they're dead. So yeah, we need to. Yeah, we we got more to talk about. But we'll we'll let this breathe for a while. Meantime, sure. I'm going to go. Uh, Enjoy a sunny day in Southern California. All right. So you, do you, before I let you go, do you have any questions for me? I just got to make sure. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're, okay. You're <laughs> sure. going, you're, you obviously are 
a crafty interviewer. I've seen your list of subjects yes. running the gamut of sports media. What do you want to do with this? I mean, you're a pretty good interviewer. Is there a next step? You just got to keep doing your podcast? You or know what? Here's do you the, think there's a place for you in this crazy business? Here's what I want to do. I want to keep getting better. I want to keep having interesting interviews, keep my head down. I keep raising my daughter, keep my health where it is right now. I had a miserable 2019. I had three surgeries in 289 days. So I just want to stay healthy. I want to keep doing the best work I can do, you know, keep getting better every week, you know? And, um, I, I said, I kind of kept my head down for 10 years, worked as hard as I could on this. And I looked up and a few people noticed that was pretty cool, but I'm just going to keep, you know, working hard and, Keep staying healthy. I got a four-year-old daughter. I want to make sure I can walk her down the Great. aisle and all that kind of Good sappy you. stuff. You know, well, so that's if, all. I, if I'm not prying, you don't no. have to answer this. No, I'm, you're not prying. What, what were your uh, What were your surgeries? Oh, so I have um, Crohn's disease, and um, I've had three uh, resectioning surge, bowel resections. And in 2019, I had my third resectioning, but instead of just sewing me back up, he put a colostomy bag in so that it, it could heal. Um, so then I had to have another surgery to reverse it. And then I had to have a third surgery because I had a surgical hernia. So it was a rough year. So I just want to keep, you know, getting better, you know, stay healthy. I've had a, a long battle here since 2003, a lot of surgeries and good days and bad days and all that. But I've had, had a good year and want to keep that, like I said, and, and, and keep trying to raise a, a good human and, you know, a nice little daughter here. I got a nice family, a nice little corner of the world here. And, uh, the northern suburbs of Buffalo, and see what happens. You know what I mean? I, I've had some opportunities, but I've been hesitant to take people's money because I don't want to put my foot in until I know I can go all the way. I didn't want to take someone's money and then, oh, man, I, I got to make that call. Hey, I'm in hospital here in Buffalo, and I might be here six weeks. You know, I don't know. So I've been hesitant, but we'll see. I just well, want to keep working uh, hard, doing the best speed. I can. That, that's, you know, you're, the fact that you continue to carry on. There are people in the business right now. I mean, <clears throat> for instance, uh, Greg Olson, who is about to become a huge star at Fox, the, the former tight end, Carolina yeah. Panthers. I, I saw today his, for his, his family for sure. baby finally yeah. will be having a heart transplant, and that's great news. Uh, and And those are the real stories in this business we get caught up in this day-to-day grist of lebron and naomi osaka and, sure. and, 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 and it's it's breathtaking i mean to this day you can tell how excited i get about stories because I, I just I'm, I'm a you know journalist at heart i love talking sports to this day that is never ever going to leave me no matter how wacko the business gets but yeah i i enjoy doing that five who get a five who don't but uh, last week, Olson was right there. Five would get it because Greg, Greg obviously has his priorities straight, and he's got a he's put sunk money into a children's hospital there. And those are the people. Dick Vitale is, is in his eighties, signed a new deal, but Dick Vitale will become, I think, best known for when when the you know we're reading his eulogy yeah. about all of his charitable work through the years. See, that, and it's great to hear your story too. But on top of all those stories is the fact that those are people who are working in sports media and still having to go do great work. And that's what I'm impressed by you here. You're battling your health, and yet you're sitting here studying a subject, going back and doing your homework. You do it with everybody that is on here. And I think you should be applauded for that. A lot of people would have 
thrown in the towel and said, I'm not going to do this podcast. You're, you're getting national attention for it. Now I understand why you're getting national attention for it. Keep plotting on, man. You're, you're doing that. great. Yeah. And I, and most importantly, I think your questions were extremely professional and you could have taken them a step further. And next time I welcome you to, I have gone into great detail about events and everything. Feel free. It's also 11 years old. It's kind of old news. It's out there, sure. but only one side of it's out yep. there. So, well, and I'm trying to be respectful to everybody involved in this case to this day. I don't want to be disrespectful. And I think to, to answer your question, it's one of the reasons why, well, Jay, I've been, maybe you've done a good enough job uh, getting your side out, and you're not the first one to say that. It's because I'm trying to be respectful of a lot of people in this. And you have to think deeply about what, what possibly – uh, people who possibly could be affected if I went on here and started telling details about cases from 11 years ago. So I would love to. I think time has moved on. I hope that people like you will continue to just read uh, my pieces and not uh, take A.J. Delario seriously. I wish A.J. Delario well. I hope he stays sober. I hope maybe he calls me some days a day and explains why in the hell he did what he did to me and lied about me as much as he did. But whatever, it's it's life is too short to worry about this. I think everybody's been jolted by the last year and a half, and sports isn't really all that important. But I still love writing about it. And next time, uh, we'll talk about sports as well. I'd love to talk sports with you. Yeah, next time I want to do more sports and. Maybe you just want to find out a little bit more about that Ebert thing because he's an interesting character to me. I'm a big Howard Stern he, guy. Well, he passed away. He's, I know. Yeah, God rest his soul. Yeah, God rest his soul. I'm a big Howard Stern fan, and him and uh, Siskel would go on all the time. He'd be on himself, and Howard was relentless on poor, uh, poor Ebert. But uh, Roger Ebert was told to do that. It, it was. It was. It was. This was the espionage I'm talking about. He was. He was ordered to do it. Roger Ebert. Couldn't have cared less whether I left the paper or not. He was told to do that. They sure. had it, it's it's it's. But we'll get to that next sure. time. But again, I also love. To, I would love to talk about like, what's the future of Major League Baseball. Absolutely. And, but what there are so many topics out there that we could be doing. We got all this uh, out of the I, way. We got all this out of the way. Yeah. Next time we'll just talk sports. I, I'm going to DM you cool. my my number. Shoot me a text just so that we can so that I can just reach out and say, hey, you want to do this sometime or whatever. But um, you got it, man. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you, and uh, I, you, you take care of yourself, and and good luck, and, and thanks for having me. I was a little too tall. Could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points. All of she was a black haired beauty with big dark eyes And points on her own, sudden way up high Well, I'm officially speechless <laughs> Jay Mariotti, coming in hot uh, Making a statement there Thank you to Jay Mariotti for being on the podcast today. Quick book club update. So in a second, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with the author of a book called Cobra, which I very much enjoyed. Uh, And it's written by a guy named Dave Jordan and, of course, Dave Parker, who is the Cobra. And it's a really great book and a really fun interview, and I I enjoyed uh, talking to Dave, and I'm excited for you guys to hear the interview 
Uh, we mentioned it a few times that the book is called Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood by Dave Parker and Dave Jordan. Uh, so that's the first part of book club business. The second is I got to reach out to an author uh, named Pete Croato, who wrote the book From Hang Time to Prime Time. And he sent me a copy and I've been reading it and it'll be interesting to talk to him about it. I hope you've checked it out. It's been out for a bit. And I know he's been in a lot of places uh, promoting it. So I'm excited to talk to Pete. His book is from hang time to prime time. And today, or maybe it was yesterday. Yesterday? I don't know. Yesterday or today was the official release date of the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. Uh, the book, of course, is Glory Days by L. John Wertheim. It is his fourth book, I believe, in the book club. Scorecasting was first. The Al Michaels book that he co-wrote with Al. Uh, this is Your Brain on Sports, which was essentially a scorecasting sequel, but with a different author, co-author. And now Glory Days, the summer of 1984, and the 90 Days that Changed Sports and Culture Forever. This book is out. You can buy it now wherever you buy books. And on Friday, uh, John and I will, will, will discuss it and other things as well. So that's where we're at with the book club. When we get done with these three, I'll probably take a break till the fall. Because um, I don't want to read any more books right now. <laughs> I want to enjoy the summer. Uh, but you never know. We'll have something in there. Maybe a movie or a DVD. we got to do something to fill this time. Uh, but for now, we have great books uh, filling it. So we're going to take a break right now and come back with the author of one of those books, Dave Jordan. Our next guest tonight is the co-author of the book about the Cobra, Dave Parker, who, of course, starred on the 1979 We Are the Family Pirates. Uh, And Dave Jordan reached out to me and said, hey, check out this book and have me on. And we're excited to do it tonight. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the first time. Two debuts tonight. Uh, A warm welcome to Dave Jordan. Hey, Dave, how you doing tonight? Hey, Steve, how's it going? Thanks for having me on tonight. Yeah, thanks Thanks for doing this. I'm really excited. I enjoyed the book. It was uh, Oh, was, that's great to hear. Yeah, an interesting read. I appreciate you bringing it to my attention so we could do this. Uh, really enjoyed it. I know a lot of the listeners, too, have reached out that they either had ha- already read it or that they were reading it and enjoyed it as well. So take take me to the beginning. How'd you get hooked up with, uh, with Dave Parker? Well, about a year after the release of Fastball John, the Johnny D'Aquisto autobiography that I co-authored, uh, Johnny and I had just gotten home from an event in Cooperstown celebrating the book uh, when I had a chat with a friend of mine who's close to Parker. And he was like, you know, Dave's trying to get an autobiography off the ground. He's been doing it for about 15 years, and he's gone through two or three sets of writers. You know, and, and when baseball fans of a certain age hear his name, it's like, ooh, the Cobra. You know, that must have been a wild ride. So that book in the right hand should be a tremendous reading experience. And I told my buddy I'd be happy to talk to him, talk him through the process, you know, I enjoy helping other writers because the whole book publishing world is such a Byzantine adventure at times, and it's not always user-friendly. 
So my friend was like, nah, just call him. I'd love to see what Cobra's story would look like in your hands, which kind of made sense in a way because D'Aquisto and Parker were born in the same year, graduated high school at the same time, were both selected in the 1970 Major League Draft, and both made their big league debuts in 73. I had all the research in place, all the fact-checking in place. It was territory that I was extremely familiar with. That's interesting. Now, you mentioned you wanted to talk to Parker about the process. What is the process? Is it interviewing and then transcribing? Is it he writes and then you rewrite? You don't have to get too much into it, but just in general, how do you collaborate? Yeah. Well, the book publishing process is very much like you have to write a book proposal and bring it. Well, first of all, you have to make sure you have a proper agent in place. Mm -hmm. And very often it doesn't matter that you have an agent. I mean, people say you need an agent. No, you need an agent who has proper pipelines to publishers. And, um, and not all agents have that. So, um, you know, there's some guys who submit a, a, an amazing book, but they already have two strikes against them because the relationship isn't in place. So um, you may have to have that. Then you have to write a book proposal. The book proposal, proposal for Cobra was about 45 pages long, and it included two chapters. So, um, so that was, that's a big part of the process. Uh, but really, the process with Parker and I, uh, it was basically we would chat maybe twice a week for an hour. And then maybe every two months, you know, I would, I would hop in the car and, and go see him for two or three days. And we would hang out and, uh, and we would just talk about his life. I would let him know what, what we've done so far. He, I've been sending him copies of the manuscript and he would say, this, I like this, I like that. We should talk more about this, things, things of that nature. So it was an extremely collaborative process. And, and we talked basically twice a week for about 18 months. Interesting. that You had said in the email, and I, I wasn't exactly sure what you meant, but in the original email you sent me, you said something like, I sent you the talking points, but don't read them because they're spoilers. And I was like, spoilers? And, you know, I think I remember 79, they won, 89. You know what I mean? Like, it's interesting. I, I know, but that, that, here's the thing about <laughs> no, Hold that. on, let me finish. Let me finish. Okay. So then you had said um, th- that the book is written in sort of a narrative kind of novel mm-hmm. type approach and I was a little bit skeptical of what that meant until I read I think I read like the third chapter and I put it down and I said okay I know what he means you know what I mean it's, mm-hmm. it's it's a really engaging way that you told the story tell me a little bit about the style and kind of how it came about and why you decided to go that route well I, I actually do some consulting with celebrities and athletes on their memoirs and, and I and one thing I say to them is that you need a through line if you want to create a really compelling read. There's two types of books. There's the book that is sort of anecdotal. I did this, I did that, I dated this, you know, celebrity, I dated this rock star, things like that. You know, I hit 39 home runs in 1976. You know, you, you hit all the points or you play all the hits, so to speak. But then there's the, um, you know, the, the narrative through line of Cobra is that he came of age at the peak of black baseball. And that's sort of one of the narratives of the book. Another narrative are the relationships that he enjoyed and how those relationships carried him through the years and what he learned from those relationships and how he brought that to uh, to a leadership uh, position later in his career with Cincinnati and, and a little bit with Oakland and especially with Milwaukee. So he, um, he definitely, we, we, we went through and we wanted to make sure that 
you know, when you hit all those narrative points, that's when people are like, oh, my God, this reads like a novel. It's because we structured it like a novel. Right. Yeah, it kind of reminded me a little bit, not exactly the same, but a little bit like how Jane Levy does her books with, you know, I mm-hmm. think the Ruth one was the, the, the through line was the um, the tour that, that Ruth was on. And yeah. each one had that kind of, you know, point that the story went back to. I, I enjoyed the way it was written. I enjoyed reading it. Made it kind of breeze by, I feel like, a little bit. And also had that thing, oh. that, that thing where at the end of the chapter, you at least want – I think a couple of times, like, I'm going to re- at least read the first couple pages of the next chapter before I go to bed or whatever. Kind of had oh, that wow. that vibe to it. I don't know. That's how I well, I'm, 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 that that that's what we aimed for. That's what we wanted to do, and and we really went after. Um, we really went after in that sense. That was that was kind of what we wanted to accomplish. You talked about it being the the through line being the peak of black baseball, and certainly race was a part of the book. I thought that it was well balanced, though. I didn't feel like it was a race book, really. You know, I felt like it was very much about his career. That that was one aspect of his career. Reading reviews, though, I feel like that's definitely the focus of the reviews um, that I've read online. Um, it's kind of interesting to me because I thought there was a lot more to the story than just that, you know, Dave Parker was a black baseball player. Did I miss it? Yeah, I mean, no, not at all. I mean, that that was one, like I said, one of the through lines. And then the other major through line that we went on. And, and here's the thing also. The Pittsburgh Pirates were very instrumental in the construction of the book. Um, in terms of fact checking, they basically opened the Rolodex to me. That I was, I, I ultimately I interviewed about seventy-five players, coaches, managers, executives, agents, and then even you know in, in Parker's high school life, I, I spoke with numerous uh, high school teammates, high school teachers. His guidance counselor is, is in her eighties and still with us. Wow! And as you know, reading the book, as you know, that yep. she played an instrumental part mm-hmm. in his life. And she kind of explained to me also what, you know, what life was like at a highly integrated school in the late 1960s. It's just interesting, too, with a guy like Dave Parker. What do you know about him going in? You know, to me, and I'm sure that your age depends on this. To me, going in, the first thing I remember is is the A's teams. Because, you know, my first World Series was the 85 World Series. That's the first one I can remember watching. When the Royals mm-hmm. won, and then I was really into those—I right. was really into those A's teams, and I remember knowing their lineup. You know, like the first team I knew where everyone played and what their lineup was because they were cool. You know, they had home runs and had that cool thing they did with their arms. You know, and um, <laughs> and uh, so I remember Dave Parker from that first. You know, where probably my, my some of my dad's age for sure remembers him first for the We Are the Family team. But then I was thinking like, what do I know about him? And what I love about these books, the books like this and this book especially, like I had no idea he was potentially going to be a star football player at Ohio State, for example, and a knee injury kept him from this. There's a lot of great, I guess that's what I, I meant in the question, that there's so much more about his life and so many things that happened mm-hmm. in the book that I really enjoy other than uh, that one specific angle of it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's something funny that Parker tends to say. He's like, you know, we play all the hits, but Chet, wait till you wait till you see and, and hear the deep tracks. Right. And um, we are the family know, is the hit. Right. Like that's the that's the enter Sandman at the Metallica concert. You know, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the 79 100%. Pirates. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, I like that. It's like, OK, well, we you know, we can't not play enter Sandman, of course, and we got to give it a good, good spot on the set. But. People who are going to really love this book are going to be like flipping out when we play Blackened 
or something. I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Right. And, and, you know, it's a funny line because in in this thing, we almost decided, we're going to tell you a story and we're also going to tell what I, what we believe is the definitive story of the 79 postseason. And we wanted to get into it. Like when I'd go out to see Parker, we, it was a surreal experience. It was like, we would just put on the, uh, put on YouTube or something and, and just watch the games from the 79 postseason. In my head, I, I'm sitting next to Scorsese watching Goodfellas. It was, it was very surreal. And, um, but then we would sit down and we would talk about it. And he would give me this running commentary of what was going on before the game or after the game or on the, off the field or in the hotel or whatever it was. And, um, and that was really added a lot to it. And a lot of people say like, well, you don't want to go, you know, uh, at bat for at bat because people could just get that out of baseball reference. But the interesting thing is they can't get pitch pitch by pitch data before 1988. So we would go really deep into what was going on there. And we really, we went pretty granular with the whole thing. And it's easy to forget what the playoffs were like then. You know, it was uh, an ALCS that was a best of five. And that's it yep. before the World Series, then the best of seven World Series. And I really yeah. like, because when I think of the 79, someone says 1979 baseball, all, I, all that comes to mind is, okay, Pirates, you know, we have, the, you know, all that, you know, Stargell comes to mind really easily. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't realize that Baltimore was really the best team in the league that year in terms of record and maybe we're the favorites, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, you learn a lot about that. Well, Try to think how again now. See, you're kind of in my head a little bit because you told me not to give out the spoilers before I read it. So I'm kind of walking the thin line, you know, a little bit <laughs> of like, you know, how do I want to approach this? Because I don't want to spoil it, or how do I want to approach this? Uh-oh. Let me ask you some kind of subjective questions from your research Absolutely. and what he said to you. How good of a football player do you think this guy could have been? I think he could have gone, he could have played at Ohio State, first year starter. He was the number one uh, football prospect uh, recruit in Cincinnati at the time. Okay. In, in, 19, in 1969, in the entire city, he was the best. And where was and he, he in the state? The whole... In the state, I mean, there were, there were a few others that, that could compare with him. Okay. But, I mean, he was the kind of player, he was very much, and I don't know how far back you go, if you go far enough back to Earl Campbell, he was the kind of tailback who could carry three or four defensemen on him at a time. Sure. He was... He was just a juggernaut. What probably would have happened to him, he would have played maybe a year or so at, at tailback, and they might have realized, hey, we could utilize him so much better at tight end. I think he ends up, he probably ends up in the NFL as a tight end, quite, quite frankly. Do you think if he's born, you know, 20 years ago, that the medicine is such that they just fix those knees up and he ends up in football? It's possible, but 20 years ago also, he would be looking at, he would be looking at those insane um, draft bonuses for Major League Baseball. And uh, okay. as much as he loves – here's the thing about Parker right now. He still, to this day, comp- considers himself a football player who's just really good at baseball. It, <laughs> there's a little bit of a Happy Gilmore thing to it. But, um, you know, he still – he lives and dies and breathes football. I mean, the first couple of months of us, our conversations really didn't talk a lot about baseball or this or that it was about nfl i would call him every sunday and he'd be like call me next week call me next week and we would talk for a half hour between 11 and 11 30 all revved up the Bengals. uh the Bengals. yeah yeah he's um oh, that... it was originally the cleveland browns but the Bengals had 
had come up, come about uh, as an expansion team, I believe, in '67 or '68. So, um, so, and then as he became a prominent, you know, member of the uh, Cincinnati sports class, he got to know like guys like Anthony Munoz, who's a uh, uh, all-time great Cincinnati Bengal, is one of his close friends, things like that. So he's become a Cincinnati Bengal fan, but he always wanted to be the next Jim Brown. Man, he must have been crushed with that Kajana Carter injury. He must have been. He must have yeah. been sitting there thinking, "Oh, I know this story, right?" Because yep. Kajana yep, Carter was the first. I think he was the first pick in the draft by the Bengals, and throw up his knee. It was yeah, never the was, same. Just a little bit before the yeah. time where you could be Adrian Peterson and have that ACL injury and then rush for twenty one hundred yards the next year or whatever it was. Um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Give me something on the A's team that wasn't in the book, just because, like I said, I enjoyed that that era. Uh, just well, yeah, well, we, we, here, here's what happened. Yeah. Um, we. Um, we wrote basically a, we, we submitted a 65, 650 page manuscript and that included everything, everything. Right. And, and, um, and our editor at our editor in Nebraska just kind of laughed. It was so ridiculous. He was like, I, I can't, we can't publish a 700 page book. <laughs> so we had to figure out what had to go. And I'd conducted uh, an anecdotal survey on Facebook of like the tightest baseball book readers that I knew hundred of them. And I said, Parker's writing a book. What do you want to hear about? Overwhelmingly, obviously everybody wants to hear sure. about the pirates yep. and the, dr- and the drug trials. What does the drug trials mean? Right. It means the Cincinnati Reds. So they want to hear about the pirates and the Reds and, maybe Pete um, Rose. and minor league days. Yeah. Maybe Pete Rose. Yeah. And, and that was the thing because there is such a connection and a correlation between how Parker played with how Pete Rose played. And I'm shocked that writers haven't really, I mean, there was one book, that talked a little bit about the relationship between Pete Rose and, and Dave Parker, but it, it's not a, a significant aspect, but it really is. And they were very close for a number of years. And it was the kind of like, kind of close, like kids came over at Christmas and exchanged presents and things like that. They were really tight. And, uh, and that's something we also wanted to bring out in the book. And we wanted to, you know, I've, I, I, there are a number of writers, whether it's Jeff Perlman or Howard Bryant, that I have so much affection for their work. And Howard Bryan always talks about you got to open your book with a, with a kick-ass line. And as I was talking with Parker, he was telling me everything about how the remorse he felt about, you know, the drug trials falling on the day that Rose was supposed to break the record. And, um, and that's when we decided that's going to be the opening of the book, where he's basically saying to the man who's famous, who has uttered the most famous apology in baseball history, He's going to apologize to him. That's how we open the book. And that's what we wanted people to think. This is that, this is that kind of book. That we just take things and sure. just twist them. And, and, you know, now you're in for a ride. Here we go. Okay, so I understand why the A's weren't in there. But I know you wrote about the A's, so you got to give me one or two good things about what we would have read about Parker and the A's. All right, all right, all right, all right fine. So here's the thing. <laughs> MLBbro.com published what we call the dh years there's three chapters quote unquote the missing episodes of cobra that can be found on the web what was it mlb and bro mlbbro.com rob parker with fox sports started a um a baseball website that's focused on black and brown players exclusively and uh with okay. the opening of, of that website um they they wanted to publish some parker material so we gave them the dh years but i'll tell you i'll tell you a story right now Okay. Um, all right, here we go. So it was a young team, as you know. Yep. And young guys 
are really just a little rambunctious, a little all over the place. And a lot of the Oakland players would run around the clubhouse, slapping each other on the back of the neck and go, gotcha. And um, <laughs> I can believe it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can believe that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Parker's this old man. He's 36, 37. Does or whatever. not want to be smacked in the back of the brought, neck. Yeah. And LaRusa La brings him in there specifically to keep these guys focused, eyes on the prize. Sure. You know, LaRusa thinks these guys can go all the way. So, anyway, so Parker's sitting, like, reviewing some documents or whatever in, 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 in the clubhouse on his chair. And out of nowhere, McGuire goes, whap, gotcha, bro, gotcha, Cobra. Oh, boy. And, <laughs> and, and, and Parkway is just turns to him and is like, you know, pay back the bitch, son. And he takes his time. It's not the next day. It's not the next week. And about a month later, he's in the clubhouse. And Tony Phillips is telling him some crazy story. And he looks over in the corner of the clubhouse, and there is McGuire. And he's leaning on his stool, just almost rocking, with a cup of coffee in his hand. And Parker's like, this is the moment. This is when we're <laughs> going to do it. And Parkway just gets up very slowly and quietly, step by step, and whacks him in the back. Wow. And, and just, you know, McGuire's flailing, coffee everywhere, room closed, <laughs> And he's on the ground, and he just yells up at Parker. He's like, you bastard. And Parkway just leans in, and he's like, I finished the job, but I don't want to hear any, I don't want to hear any stuff from Tony. All right. He's like, we cool? And McGuire's like, we cool. That's awesome. He was there for – he was 88 and 89. You know, you say those A's teams are young. They're kind of built around the back of three straight rookies of the year, you know, in Conseco, McGuire, and Walt Weiss, and then – you add the pieces from there. And he was, I think, on 88 and 89. The World Series winners are 89. So the two big things he's kind of there for are the earthquake in 89 and the Kirk Gibson home run, one of the most famous plays in the history of baseball. Do you, have any, do you guys talk about either of those things? Any thoughts or comments on the Kirk Gibson home run? Yeah, we the... went. We, if you know, if you've read Cobra, you can have an idea of how deep we go with these things. Right. And we do talk about um, in, the, in those articles. The first article, <coughs> the chapter title is Paradise City. And it's basically how Parker went to this team and he was going to bring all of his all of his music, his Cool in the Gang, his Isley Brothers, his Bobby Womack, and he gets there and it's nothing but metal. All he's hearing is metal all the time. And it's just, you know, it's Guns N' Roses. Yeah, it's the it's era. Girls from yeah, girls. that's the era, it's, yep. California, it's all that, yep. Yeah, that's all he's hearing. And... um and that's kind of what the first chapter is about and how he acclimates himself to this team and how he falls in love with the team and how he really falls in love with Dave Stewart. He loves Stewart. He, he, they, they go everywhere and Stu loves eating in like these fancy restaurants around the majors and, you know, they'll eat in Detroit and they'll go to these great places in Chicago, all the steakhouses and, and the five-star joints in, in Manhattan. And they love all that stuff. And, um, and the second chapter is basically about Ricky's uh, arrival. And, um, and mm. that's called My Prerogative. Because it's like Parker's looking at his, his final year in Oakland, and he's, starting to, he's kind of seeing what's on the horizon. The horizon is Jose Canseco is like Parker 10 years earlier. And Jose Canseco is going to need to get paid. They just get Ricky. Ricky's going to need to get paid. Sure. He's in the final year of contract. Yeah, McGuire. He's having some issues with the end. Yeah, all those guys are going to need to get paid. What's it going to be? What's going to happen? And, and Parker's just like the big song of that summer of a little before that summer, but that year they were still playing. It was Bobby, Bobby Brown. Brown's my prerogative. Yep. 
So, um, so that's the spirit of that chapter. So if you check that, if you like A stuff, those chapters will, uh, you'll enjoy them. And, and we talk a lot about the 88 World Series and we talk about expectations about, I expect Oral Hershiser to do A, B, and C. And sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. And that's kind of what happened there. It's like, you know, it's coming and you can't stop it. Well, it's interesting because Kirk Gibson always said he expected the backdoor slider from Eckersley on that pitch he, he hit yep. out. Yep. So That's expectations right. we, there we, for we, sure. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that, that A's group needs a proper book. That A's team needs a proper What's book. That? You already said so that A's team needs a proper book, that, that, that group of A's teams. You, you already got part of the work done. Maybe that can be your next thing. I'll feature it if you write it. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Again, <laughs> you know, the great Howard Bryant, the great Howard Bryant is working on a uh, Ricky book that will be out next year. And I know it's going to be spectacular. Oh, yeah. Everyone loves those Ricky stories, right? Where he's like, uh, what was it? Oh, Ricky used to play with a guy in Seattle that wore a yeah. hat on the field or whatever. But it's kind of like, I heard that they're kind of like Andre the Giant stories where they're. Yeah, they might, uh, some, some of them might be. Yeah. But, um, but he's, he's really, he, he's something, he's something interesting, Ricky Henderson. And, um, and, and I know that that book, I know he participated a great deal in the Howard Bryant book, so uh, oh, that's, gonna be some, that's gonna be one to watch. Can't wait for that. Uh, was, <laughs> Ricky doesn't Ricky doesn't listen to albums. Ricky listens to CDs. <laughs> <laughs> so someone asked yeah. him, "Do you listen to the new whatever album?" And he's like, "Oh no, Ricky doesn't listen yeah. to albums. Listen to CDs. That'll be great." Well, I didn't even that's know about that. Well, the book we're talking about tonight, though, because Howard Bryant doesn't need another commercial. Uh, <laughs> Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood by Dave Parker and Dave Jordan. And Dave Jordan's nice enough to be on tonight. And obviously you can get this book, you know, you don't need a map. You can get it in digital formats or hardcovers out. Yeah. I, yeah. I've seen it at the, whenever I go to uh, Barnes and Noble, my daughter calls it the library. Whenever we go to Barnes and Noble to, to look at books at if, if whatever one's in the book club, I always put it in a more prominent position as a goof. So oh, I, I actually I actually moved Cobra like out from in the sections to like it had like five copies of I don't even know what it was I put it on top of those. Sorry to that book. But. <laughs> well, that's very nice. It's, it's been a nice season for uh, for books about black baseball, and, and we're so happy to be uh, one of the highlighted features of that. And um, you know, it's just I'm I'm so glad every everybody's you know enjoying enjoying the book because we really. You know, there, there's another book. There's, there's other books out there. We really wanted this to feel like a spiritual Netflix series where you just dig into it and you binge on it and, and you just enjoy it. And it's it's a really interesting and many times fun experience. Yeah. Is there anything looking back? You know, it came out in April, I think. So you've done a lot of interviews for it. You know, you've promoted it. He's promoted it. It's been here. It's been there. Is there anything? You feel like you is there anything the leftover parts of the pandemic maybe or is there anything that you wish you you could have done differently or wish you would have done differently anything not time out right anything about the promotion of it sticks out something that hit something that was great I don't know I'm interested in that sometimes I mean yeah I mean we're really we're pretty happy with how things have gone and um you felt you know, like we, the pandemic uh, stuff didn't hurt the book at all you kind of came out late enough in the games kind of passed most of that. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we ended up, um, we're going to be probably, uh, signing with, um, at, at PNC park, uh, sometime this summer. Um, we, we did a signing at great American ballpark in April. 
and we'll probably be doing another one there late uh, in the late summer. And it was a big hit. You know, we, we sold out the allotment of books that we had, and everybody enjoyed seeing the Cobra. And, um, and it was great. And it's been a nice experience. And uh, I, I can't say enough about <clears throat> how the Pirates and, and the Reds were so welcoming uh, to, to Dave's story, and they wanted to really talk about it. And we were happy to um, kind of brag about the inclusiveness of the pirate story uh, and their and their, their organization back in the seventies, and, and that was a big part of the uh, book as well. PNC Park's a beautiful place to be in the summer too. I mean, any day or yeah. night spent in PNC Park's a great one. It's a shame the team is as bad as it is this year. You know, yeah, that, 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 that's a two beer conversation. Yeah, but, um, they're having trouble we, with I, first I, base. I, they can't touch it. They can't. It's like I don't know. That's an interesting yeah. squad there. But, um, yeah, P- PNC yeah. Park is, is a beautiful place. The book, again, let me yeah. go over it one more time. It's called Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood by Dave Parker and Dave Jordan. Of course, you can get it wherever you get books. You can find Dave, if you'd like, on Twitter. He's over there at InStream Sports, at InStream Sports. And uh, you can find his tweets about the book and other things there. Interact with him as well. Um, let me think of something to get you out of here on. Well, we talked about the hits. Uh, there's the, you know, the We Are the Family we said was maybe the Enter Sandman. So that means that the drug trials are maybe the sad but true, you know, and um, you go on from there. But give me one more deep cut. What's another deep cut story you think is good for people who have listened to this? See, because I'm being really careful. I'm dancing around the details because, like I said, yeah. you kind of got me in the head. I don't want to spoil it. I want people to go into it fresh the way I did. But what's what's the tiny little teaser you like to put out there from one of the non hits? Like, let's stay away from the drug trial and and the and the seventy nine okay. team. Like, I, what's something else that we can kind of hook yes. people on because they know yeah. those. Like, what's the hidden track that I think is going to hit the most? You know, like what's I said blacking before. What's the fight fire with fire of this book or something? All right, fine. Okay, basically, um, I just want to name obscure Metallica songs. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> But Parker emerged right before the uh, the beginnings of free agency. And there was an agent, as you remember from the book, who represented Doc Ellis. And then he represented oh, yeah. Manny Sanguian. Yep. And then he re- represented Joe Morgan, Ken Griffey, George Foster. One by one, he picked up all these players from Cincinnati and Pittsburgh back and forth. And then he ultimately worked his way into Houston, where he was representing J.R. Richard and Bob Watson. His lone holdout was the Cobra, was Dave Parker. It got to the point where they would go to these, you know, these five-star hotels and be sitting at the hotel bar, and, and Parker would just whip out his wallet and throw it on, on the bar and says, I'm buying. And, and the agent was like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm paying for everything. And Parker was like, you know, bar, neither the bar nor, nor lender B. And one of the other C plots or B plots of the book is how this relationship grew between Parker and this agent who started out basically as a legal fixer in 1971 for Doc Ellis, by 1985, he's representing 300 players. And, um, and that relationship is something no one's expecting in the book. And, um, and I think I found it to be very compelling. And uh, the more I heard about that story, the more I thought, all right, here's something people are going to want to know about Parker. And also they can learn about the beginnings of free agency from a side they haven't seen before. A couple other things I wrote down, which are really interesting, I thought in the book was uh, the Roberto Clemente stuff, and you know him passing away on was it New Year's Eve, nineteen seventy-two? I hope that's right. 
Um, yep. Uh, I thought that that was really interesting. I didn't obviously know they were as close as they were, and there was some really interesting stuff in there. I thought it's really interesting. There was a part where you're kind of talking about, like, this is the kind of detail it goes into. You get to find out why Willie Stargell is pops, you know? Yep. And I thought that was interesting, too. So there's a couple of deep cuts. Um, a, uh, a, um, yeah, yeah. Sarge yeah. was basically the, the sergeant at arms to Clemente's leader of the team. And then he kind of just, it was foisted upon him to, uh, to be basically once Clemente passed, it was spring 1973, you know, one of the, um, the, the executives from the pirates said, Willie, you have to be the leader now. And, and he really didn't take to it too quickly. Cause he said, I can't do this so soon. A lot of people have an issue with that and they'll think it's very a cynical move. And a lot of people, a lot of players did think that. So it took like a year before Stargell was named the captain of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, I hope Dave Parker's knees give him some peace. I know that it's also in the book kind of how he's got sore knees. You know, it's like everyone's got that <clears throat> relative who's got a sore back or sore knees or whatever. He's still got that from his playing days, kind of the battle wounds. I hope he's feeling well, and I'm glad I got to read his story. I'm glad you guys got to tell his story. It's an amazing one. This is a little bit of a different interview because usually I have like all these notes, stuff from the book, and I ask you about But I kind of wanted to respect the narrative a little bit and kind of go as spoiler-free as possible. I hope we, hope I did a decent job with it. I'm not sure. But I really appreciated it and really appreciated you. Steve, thanks, thanks so much for making this time with me. I, I really, really enjoyed it. thank dave jordan and jay mariotti for being on the podcast tonight don't forget you can hear this episode of the sportscasters and all almost 350 on our soundcloud page it's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters you can also follow me on twitter at sports underscore casters or email me the sportscasters at gmail.com also on that sportscasters feed is a 24 inch podcast that I do with Hollywood Dave Rollins and my daughter Paula Bennett, who picks matches on there and reads her emails. It's adorable, her weekly contributions to that show, but we'll talk about her in a minute. Uh, also, don't forget to check out Greetings from Allentown uh, at GF Allentown Pod. My boy Peter Winson, Battling Fatigue, podcast fatigue that we all get as podcasters. Uh, but he's still over there doing his weekly show on Thursdays. And of course, Greetings from Allentown Live with Keithy, which I know keeps him fresh. And, man, I've been saying this, but we got a uh, an Adams Division podcast. We got it prepped. We just got to record it. Um, All right. That's it for tonight, plugs. One last thing. Oh, before I get to one last thing, I, I forgot to mention it off the top. Hey, let's go. Let's go, Missouri. Let's go, Italy. Uh, 2-0 and in the Euro so far. And um, two 3 nothing wins. They've been really impressive. They're a fun team to watch, which I guess was always the supposedly the negative about Italian soccer is it wasn't fun to watch, that they were boring, you know, defensive teams that tried to win every game one nothing. Uh, they're not that that team this time. So uh, let's go Italy and we'll talk more about that as the Euro progresses. And don't forget that last episode, uh, John Champion was on 
uh, to preview that tournament. So going well so far. All right, one last thing for tonight, and I mentioned off the top, it's my daughter's fifth birthday. And, you know, Jeff Perlman once in his his way that he sometimes can express himself said, nobody cares about your kid, um, not even your parents, which my mom didn't appreciate. But, uh, you know, I found that not to be true. A lot of people who listen to this podcast seem to care about my kid. Um, or they're being very polite about it, or a combination of both. Um, but this does—I mean, this—that doesn't matter here because this part of the show. One last thing: this is about me, kind of pouring my heart out when I do it, and just talking about something in my life and being personal, and being honest and vulnerable, and showing everyone a side of me uh, that you might not get when, in an hour, talking to Jay Mariotti, I speak for three minutes. So five years seems like a checkpoint in a way, you know, to get a baby from birth to five years. That feels like a stop along the way where you look up and look around and you think, man, how am I doing? How am I doing? Because one thing I know for sure is nothing is more important to me than being a good dad. I do not want to fail at this. I failed as a friend. You know, who knows? Maybe I failed as a son or a brother or a husband or a boyfriend or an employee or whatever, but I won't fail at this. And I always try to reflect on the decisions I make, the things I say to Paula, the things I teach her, and say, was that? Was that good? Was that bad? How we do? Whatever. But I remember the second it, it started. I remember 2.05 a.m. Eastern, 6.16.16, when I first laid my eyes on her and heard her voice. And it hits you. You're a dad. You know, this little baby's going to count on you. You know, and the scariest thing over the last few years is not knowing if I was going to be around for her to care about me. Man, and I still worry about that. I still worry about not being around. You know, and it's not even because of Crohn's disease or my health. You know, people, what do we say? Like, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And, man... I remember I told my doctor um, in between one of the two, one of the three surgeries that I just want to make sure I can get to a point where if I pass away and she's here without me, that she remembers me, that she knew who I was, that she could picture my face and remember my voice and remember the things that we did together, you know, and I feel pretty confident we're at that point. Um, but yeah, I, I do I do worry about that still. It's one thing I worry about. Like, oh, I just want to be here. I just want to be here with her, you know? And I know every parent, you know, you see these sad stories of fathers that are passing away and they walk their daughter down the aisle even though she's not getting married because they just want to walk their daughter down the aisle because that was their dream, you know? So that scares you. You think about that, but that's just regular. But, you know, I just remember when it started and and... And knowing how seriously I wanted to take it and how hard I wanted to work with Tammy 
on it and how I never wanted to get cocky about it or how I was doing. You know, I always wanted to be able to be a parent who could change, who could adjust, you know, but the most important thing is I knew I just wanted to have fun with her. You know, I wanted to show her the thing. I wanted to share my passions with her the same way I shared my passions with my brothers. That was wildly successful. You know, sharing my passions with my brothers was wildly successful. And I wanted to carry that into fatherhood. You know, and that's been so fun to teach her about rock and roll, to teach her about the A-team. We go to an 80s toy store together. She loves the 80s. She loves Cindy Lauper and 80s wrestling. She knows who the Hart Foundation are and the British Bulldogs and Rick Rude and Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man and the Doctor of Style Slick. She knows Cowboy Bob Orton. She knows more 80s wrestlers than 99% of the people on the planet. She's five. And we've watched Cobra Kai and Karate Kid and Back to the Future and Goonies. We've played video games together. We go on daddy-daughter lunches. We have this whole elaborate thing where I have these characters that when I'm talking to her as the characters, she takes seriously that it's the characters and she can shut the characters off and bring dad back. And It's crazy to even say out loud, but we just have so much fun. You know, I just love to make her laugh. You know, and, and when she's sick, I, I want to make her laugh, you know, because I just love to make her laugh and I love to make her smile. You know, and before she was born, I was watching SummerSlam 1990 and Bret Hart, you know, quoted the song Two Hearts by Phil Collins, which I hadn't heard in probably a long time. And I listened to it that night and thought about how I wanted that to be my daughter and I, two hearts together forever till the end of time. And that's what we are. We're two hearts, Paula and I. And I'm so, so honored and privileged to be able to be her father and to see her, to see the best of me and the best of Tammy in her and to not see the worst of me. You know, because that's what I worry about, that the worst of me, the things that I hate about myself, the things that other people have hated about me, that that would be her. And it's not, at least not yet, but it's not. She's not that. She's better than me already. You know? And she's confident and she's brave and she's an only child, but she's social. And she loves to play with kids and kids love to play with her and she makes friends. And she's not scared. She's not shy. I'm just, you know, I'm proud of her. Um, And I'm proud of us. You know, I'm proud of Tammy and I. You know, and the way we've had each other's backs and the way that we've worked together and the way that her best becomes part of Paul. If Tammy was doing this and she said she would be talking about how much they love Disney together and playing with dollies and watching Disney movies and, you know, having girls nights with popcorn and doing fingernails or whatever, you know? And she gets the best. Paula gets to be the best of her and the best of me. And I'm so proud of us. And I can't, I don't know if I can't believe how much I love it because I knew I love it. But 
and I've always wanted to be a dad. You know, like I remember working, I've always loved babies. And I remember working back in the pro shop and at Holiday Twin Rinks, I, I, I worked in a hockey pro shop. And I would fit kids for their beginner packs of all their beginner hockey equipment. And I was always the best at it. And, you know, um, well, and my friend Dan was really good at it too, but he and I were the best at it. And he's a great dad, by the way. And um, I remember our boss one time said to me, like, you're going to be such a great dad. You know, and I was 18 years old, but I, I remember thinking, like, I hope so. That sounds like something good to be. You know, and five years in. And it's not for me to decide if I'm a great dad. I have no idea. That's for, it's, it's totally up to Paula and Tammy, you know, and anyone else to judge. But I'm doing my best. And I have my whole heart in it. And, you know, some of the things people tell you, they're true, you know, but they're cliche or whatever. But they are true. You know, how fast it goes and, you know, enjoy it while it lasts. All those things, of course. But. The one thing no one told me was she is going to just overrate you in a way and make you feel so great. You know, she thinks I'm so great. She thinks I'm strong and I'm not. You know, she thinks I'm in shape and I'm not. You know, she thinks I'm a great athlete still and I'm not. You know, she thinks I'm smart and she's right. You know, she thinks I'm handsome and she's right. You know, but she just thinks everything great about me. And it's hard to live up to sometimes, but it's also, it's also a chance. It's fun. It's like, I want to be what she sees in me. You know, and every day I feel like I wake up trying to be that guy, to be the guy that she sees. You know, I want to look in the mirror and see that guy. So that, you know, that's part of it. But, man, it's just been so great. And I appreciate everyone who listens to this show, who's reached out and said nice things about Paula or said nice things about Paula and I, you know, or enjoy listening to Paula on the um, 24-inch podcast and this one. I mean, she's on that one more, uh, but she's on both. And I appreciate that you do care about my kid a little bit (laughs) or you pretend to, which is fine, too. Um, but you know I'm just so so grateful that I've had this opportunity in life that you know I had a healthy and happy child and that my wife and I have got the chance to to mold her and raise her and share our passions and to love her and hug her and kiss her and take pictures with her you know God bless raising a kid in the iPhone era and always having a phone and having all these memories and videos. And she had her dance recital the other night and I cried. I was never so happy to have a mask on. So I kind of just lifted up a little bit higher to, to hide the tears coming down my eyes. Because I just had so much pride in my daughter and her, how hard she worked and how beautiful she was. And how much I love her and how much I love being a father. And I'm five years in and I hope I get to make it to 50 years in or whatever. Yeah.
myself a dream.